The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We're looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit because it's just an incredibly important topic. I want to begin by, just by asking a question. You know how Jesus, the night before he, uh, he was crucified, he had some time with his disciples and taught them many things, uh, recorded in John uh, 13 through 17. You know that whole section of Scripture there, the special and incredible time that Jesus had with his disciples. He washes their feet and then teaches them about the significance of the foot washing teaches them about love and all that. Then in John 14, uh, he teaches them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And uh, amazingly, he says something, uh, just really one of the most striking things. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your benefit that I go away. Now, what do you make of that statement? It is to your benefit that I go away. Yes, I really do mean for you to say something. You're not going to show up on the tape. Just me, unless I go here. All right, go ahead. I'm sorry. The Holy Spirit. Yeah, go ahead. The comfort will come. But meditate with me on, on the... on. Why is it amazing that Jesus would say, it's to your benefit that I go away? Why, why would that strike you as something that's really quite amazing? Yes, you would think... You know, you would think, if only I could have lived back then. Go ahead, Jack. Okay, now, that's true. You know, I've, I've said before, you know, a lot of the kid, you know, Bible videos uh, or whatever um, kind of are predicated on time travel, which is impossible. Um, but the, you go back in time, and of course, everyone back then spoke English, so that's real good, and, and it all works. Um, but the most outrageous aspect of the whole thing is that you would have immediate, personal, and direct access to Jesus, right? Do you think you would have? I mean, come on, think about it. What would, what would probably have been your experience with Jesus back then if you were not one of the 12? Huge multitudes. You remember the story of the man, the paralyzed man? that they wanted to heal. Do you remember that, that story? What happened with him? They wanted to heal a paralyzed man and uh, they couldn't get to Jesus. So what did they do? They, they dug a hole in the roof. Now, doesn't that tell you something? What does that tell you about access to Jesus? Forget it. I mean, forget it. And you think, oh, I would just, it'd be just Jesus and me, the two of us, you know, like Nicodemus, you know, that we just have these wonderful conversations. Well, the thing is you can now. By the Spirit. That's why he says, it is to your benefit that I go away. Let me share another verse from that same section of Scripture that is just about as remarkable. And some people think it's even more remarkable. He says, whoever believes in me will do what I have been doing. In fact, he will do even greater works than I have been doing because I go to the Father. Now, first tell me, why is that an amazing statement? What's so incredible about that statement? What could be more amazing than the works that Jesus was doing? Okay. Tell me more about first why it's amazing and then let's talk about why it's true. First of all, why is it amazing? What works was Jesus doing? Healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing those who have leprosy. He's driving out demons. He's doing incredible things. 
And Jesus said, you will do the works I've been doing and you will do even greater works than these because I go to the Father. Okay, so that's amazing. Now, we've talked about the amazing part. We could talk longer about it. Why is it true? Why is it true that we would do even greater works than he because um, he went to the Father? <laughs> That's why we're here, Pastor. We need answers to these tough questions. Well, I wanted you to surmise at least. Think think about it. All right, let's. All right, the, go ahead, Horace. Help me out here. Okay, the Holy Spirit empowers, and what happens? The Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. What happened as a result of that? What happened? Okay, they proclaim the gospel in, in, in different languages. And, and even that's amazing because my reading of Acts 2 is what happened is that they were just speaking. They were just preaching. But everyone was hearing it in their own native language. So something amazing is going on there. But what was the outcome of the proclamation? What happened that day? 3,000 were saved, eternally saved. Okay? Uh, do you have any record of anything like that happening in Jesus' ministry? No, I mean, there's no record. And as a matter of fact, if you really look at the fruit, so to speak, of Jesus' ministry, he's, he's hanging on the cross and he's got a handful of women and John at the foot of the cross. And all of his disciples had deserted him and fled. And it is debatable whether any of them had been regenerated yet or had come to faith. It's really kind of an Old Testament, New Testament question. They exerted some kind of faith. Jesus said concerning uh, Zacchaeus that uh, salvation had come to this house that day, etc. So people were being saved in some sense. But there's this huge harvest that occurs after the Spirit comes. Well, let's just multiply it out. Let's talk about, let's talk about last week. What do you think happened through the believers in Christ in the world last week? How many people were brought to faith in Christ last week? How many answers to prayer were there last week? Just guess. Do you have any idea? <laughs> Jim doesn't know. Guess, Jim. How many, how many answers to prayer were there last week? <laughs> Millions and millions and millions. How many people were saved? We really don't know. We do know that there's X number of churches planted around the world every day, statistically. Um, we, we really don't know how many conversions are genuine or whatever, but it's all over the world. The sun doesn't ever set. Forget the British Empire. The sun doesn't set on Jesus's empire. I mean, 24 hours a day, it's just going round and round and there are people all over the world in almost every tribe and language and people and nation worshiping Jesus. Is that greater than what Jesus was doing? Well, I don't know. But he had to mean something when he said, greater works than these will you do. And I guess this might be an answer. That if you add together the cumulative effect of 20 centuries of God's people filled with the Spirit, it's greater than what Jesus did in those three years. And we just have to retool our thinking. But look what the Spirit has done. Look what the Holy Spirit has done with people like us. Look what's happened. Look at the progress that the Church of Jesus Christ has made since the, that, that modest start in the upper room in uh, Acts chapter 1 when they're there with 120 believers waiting for the Spirit to come. Look how far it's gone. And all of that by the power of the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Greater works will, uh, will you do because I go to the Father. And so those are some incredible verses to think about. Jesus apparently thought very, very highly of the gift he was about to give. 
He said, I'm going to go and I will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. I think we undervalue the ministry of the Spirit in our lives. We undervalue all that he came to do. And so our purpose in studying is not just to look at doctrine about the Holy Spirit, read our brother Wayne Grudem's book and try to understand a bunch of facts and all that. That's not my desire. My desire is that you would have a greater sense of fellowship with God through the Spirit, that you would be putting sin to death more powerfully by the Spirit, that you would feel the power of the Holy Spirit at work in your lives to lead people to Christ that you would, by the power of the Spirit, be using your spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ, that each each of you would feel a sense of personal responsibility to make the most of the spiritual gifts you have, to make the most of the time you have, that you would be fearless through the Spirit in your relationship with God and with others, Uh, that you would see the the fruit of the Spirit at work in your lives. Uh, That's my desire. And so along the way we need to learn some things through the uh, the scriptures and and look at an outline and study some content but that's my desire i really like to see that fruit in your life and i you know i think that that's going to happen now let's look at, by way of review of the uh, things we've already seen we've talked about the work of the holy spirit what he has come to do the personality and the deity of the spirit we've already discussed we've talked about the power of the spirit how it is the spirit that gives life and he gives power for service we've talked about the purification ministry of the spirit he is the holy spirit who sanctifies us or set us apart at conversion and who continues to sanctify us after conversion Uh, we talked about the fruit of the spirit and the ongoing work of the spirit both of those we'll go back to a little bit more tonight We talked last week about the Holy Spirit revealing, how the Holy Spirit has revealed God's truth to the prophets and the apostles, and that the Spirit gives evidence of God's presence, uh, that he is a sense of the lively, the lively sense of the presence of God in a place is now by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, Now, page two, uh, we want to talk about how the Spirit has ministered the presence of God uh, throughout uh, the scriptures, especially in the New Testament. At Christ's baptism, Matthew 3.16, it says as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And in that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and remaining on him. You know, in Mark's account of the baptism of Jesus, he uses a very strong word saying heaven was torn open and the Spirit descended out of that uh, and rested. What do, you, what do you make of that, that heaven was torn open? It's a very strong word. What does that mean? Heaven was torn open. Torn apart. Okay, what does that mean? What does that give? Okay. All right, say again. All right, we live in a physical world. Five senses. We get five senses. That's what we get. But we know by faith there's more than that, isn't there? There's a spiritual realm that surrounds us in some mysterious way. But occasionally in the Bible, the barrier, I don't know what else to call it, but the barrier between the physical five-sense world and that spiritual world is opened temporarily. And the baptism of Jesus was one of those times. The, the martyrdom of Stephen was another time. He said, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, that's a good final line as you're about to be stoned, all right? Uh, you know, as he's about to die and he's seeing that, but there's an opening And then the spirit comes down. And that's such a picture to me of the ministry of the spirit. He's coming out of the spiritual realm and he's coming into this physical realm and ministering the presence of God right to us. Well, he did that at the baptism of Jesus. He is making the presence of God very uh, visible, I guess, at that point, certainly through the, the symbolism of the dove. Uh, that God is on Jesus. Uh, We see that also dramatically at the day of Pentecost. Boy, what a dramatic day that would have been. 
What an incredible day uh, to go back in time with uh, with our kids in these videos and go back in time and, and be there in the upper room when the spirit comes. What would we have experienced? I guess we'd all learn Aramaic. That's it. We'd, we'd all be back there and we'd be learning Aramaic. And they're all there praying. When the day of Pentecost came, they're all together in one place. And suddenly, what happened? What's the first thing that happened that told them the spirit was coming? Was there a wind? <laughs> All right, now, wait a minute, guys. I need, I need to be accurate here. Was there a wind or was there just the sound of a wind? <laughs> just the sound of a violent wind without the wind. Oh, what's the difference? There's a whole lot. Jim, what's the difference between the sound of a violent wind and an actual violent wind? <laughs> yeah, nothing's being torn to shreds. There's no roofs being blown off and all that. All right, just like you would see in a hurricane. But there's a sound like it's going on. So the first thing they heard was the sound of a violent wind. What what happened next? So they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire, which separated and came to rest on each one of them. So we have these two manifestations. We have the sound and we have the sight of these tongues of fire. Now, let's start start with the idea of the sound. All right. How does God produce a sound without actually moving air? How does that happen? Was there an actual moving of air there? Apparently there wasn't. Okay? So can God produce a sound inside your head? Apparently he can. And I already said that that's what happened when they go out in the streets, right? One man preaches, but they all hear in their own native language. How does God do that? I have no idea. But uh, I know that my eardrums vibrate and there's some certain chemicals that go into some place in my brain and I hear sounds. God just forgets the vibrating of the eardrum, doesn't need it. He just goes right into the head and he's able to produce this sound. It's the coming of the spirit, the sound of a violent wind. Why does God choose a wind for the coming of the spirit? Why that sound? There's all kinds of sounds they could have used. Why the sound of a roaring wind? Absolutely. Uh, we mentioned last time, I think it was, that the Hebrew word for uh, spirit, ruach, which, by the way, is one of those onomatopoeic where it sounds like what it is. Ruach. You know, it sounds like a wind. It's also translated wind and uh, breath sometimes, air, you know, that kind of thing. You get the same thing with uh, pneuma, which is the Greek word for the spirit from which we get pneumatics and pneumonia and stuff like that. And spirit, S-P-I-R, inspiration, there's the breathing. They're all in all three languages, Hebrew, Greek, English. There's that connection between wind and spirit. It just seems to be a connection that God has established right from the beginning. The spirit is in some sense like a wind. Jesus said that to Nicodemus, didn't he, in John 3? The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. And so there's the sound of this violent wind. And then there's the tongues of fire. Why, why fire? Why do you think there's this image of fire that comes down? What does that make you think of? Okay, fire purifies. All right. The burning bush. That's powerful, right? The burning bush. How Moses saw that the bush was burning but didn't burn up. And so that's especially beneficial when it's on your head. Okay, so that the spirit has come and you're burning with the spirit, but not burning up, filled with the power of God. And so the the, hear the sound of the blowing wind and they see the tongues of fire and they saw, uh, you know, the that separated and came to rest on each one. And by the way, the sound of the wind was so powerful that people out in the street heard it. 
That's what gathered the crowd. They're like, what is the wind? It's coming from that house. So they're like all gathered around the house trying to see how that could be. And it was such a mystery. And that was the crowd that Peter preached to. They're all there. And then next we have the speaking in tongues. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit enabled them. So the Holy Spirit comes and ministers the presence of God in that upper room. What a powerful experience that was. What an incredible thing. And you know, you think, oh, I'm so afraid to be a witness for Christ. Well, they weren't afraid of anything that day. The Spirit came on them so powerfully that all they could do was just go out in the street and and proclaim the Word of God. They were so ready. Very, very beautiful. Okay? Well, the Spirit also ministers the presence of God at other key places and times. For example, Acts 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came and all heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit uh, just as we have. Can anyone tell me the context of Acts 10? What's going on there? Sorry. Okay, that's fine. I'm not going to dance. I refuse to it, all right? I won't do it. No. Yeah, go ahead, John. Okay. Yeah, this is who's Cornelius, John? Who who's This is it's a, it's a major major uh moment in church history. What's huge about Acts 10? It's like one of these major forks in the road. Uh what what's going on? That's right. And right in the quote that we have on the page there. They're just so amazed that the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Gentiles. And so they're astonished. And that really, in my opinion, is one of the major themes of the book of Acts, how the how the church of Jesus Christ moved from Jew only in Jerusalem to Jew and Gentile, and frankly, predominantly Gentile, moving out to the ends of the empire, the Roman Empire, because Paul's in Rome. It's That's the story of the book of Acts. Okay, well, what does the Holy Spirit do? What is the significance of the pouring out of the Spirit? There's some chairs right in here, you guys, if you want. Please feel free to use them. What is the significance? Peter is preaching. Peter is preaching a gospel message to Cornelius and all of his friends who had gathered at the household. He's preaching a gospel message. What happened? Cornelius and his friends are listening. He's preaching about Christ, about how he went around and and did all these miracles and how he died and God raised him from the dead and they were witness to that. While Peter is speaking this, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes on them just like that. What were they, the, the Gentiles, doing before the Spirit comes? I mean, literally, let's say two seconds or one second before the Spirit came. What were they doing? They're standing motionless and listening. That We have no record of them doing anything. What does that tell you? This is huge. What is the significance of the fact they're just standing there listening and the Spirit comes on them? They didn't ask for it. Did they do anything? They did, did nothing to receive the Spirit. This is a big part of the book of Galatians. He said, "Let me. I want to ask you a question, the book of Galatians. You remember the context? The Galatian Christians were being drawn away into another gospel, a gospel of works, in which they had to be circumcised and follow all the laws of Moses. That's what Galatians is addressing. And Paul says, I want to ask you a question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Well, what's the answer to the question? Hearing, hearing with faith. That's it. Cornelius and his household is a great example. They're just standing, listening. To people. The Spirit comes. 
that teaches us that we are justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. We're not doing anything. They're just standing there and the spirit comes. What else does it teach you? What does it teach you about circumcision? It's unnecessary. How does it prove? How is that proven? They were not circumcised, not physically. You know, they were circumcised in heart by the spirit, but they were not circumcised physically. And therefore, you can see how the Holy Spirit was ahead of the church. The church had to work through it all. The Spirit's not working through anything. He's coming. He comes by power, by the hearing of the gospel. He's not waiting for them to get it. All right? Uh, he came on uncircumcised, uncircumcised men. And it's a long time before the church really works it all out. I mean, you know, they have to wrestle with it. Chapter 11, Peter has to go through all of his actions. He really gets kind of brought up on charges of going into the house of a Gentile man and eating with him. In chapter 15, the whole church has to meet together and decide what to do about circumcision, decide what to do about, um, you know, about uh, uh, the law of Moses. The Holy Spirit isn't waiting. He comes on Cornelius and all his, all his uncircumcised friends. So the Spirit is there. At any rate, it wasn't just that. The circumcised believers who were there were astonished when they saw the Holy Spirit come. Now, why is that important? You've got Peter and a, and a group of brothers that had gone with him to do this preaching. They saw the manifestation of the Spirit. By the way, what do you think that was? How did they know the Spirit had come? Right. So they saw, uh, and my guess is more than that. There was probably just a, a movement, physical movement of the people, a change in their facial expression. They're probably praising God, maybe in Hebrew or something. Here's this Roman centurion or something. I don't know what. We can only surmise what tongues they were speaking in. But they knew there was no question about it. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on uncircumcised men. All right. So the moving of the spirit was for the benefit of Peter and the Jewish believers as well. They could see the evidence that God had accepted these Gentiles as they were. And so then in chapter 11, they give testimony to that. We saw it. Peter talks about that in chapter 15 when he gives evidence. He says, Look, God accepted them as they were as Gentiles. So it's the presence of God, the presence of God in a room, the upper room, the presence of God out in the streets of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, the presence of God in Cornelius's house when they were listening to uh, the gospel being preached, the presence of God again and again in church history when groups of people just like us gather and pray and there's repentance and seeking and then the spirit comes and you just know God's in that place. What a wonderful thing that is. That's what the Spirit does. He ministers the presence of God. So the Spirit ministers, mineral page two there, a strong sense of God's presence in the hearts of God's people. Could somebody read this for me? Uh, John 7, 38 and 39. It's right there in the middle of page two. Right. Jesus is talking on one of the Jewish feasts. And this is the one to remember when he said, I'm not going to the feast and his brothers wanted him to go and do some miracles. Jesus doesn't go, but then he goes later. And on the last and greatest day of the feast, he stands and calls out in a loud voice. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And so they come and he's talking about the spirit and he com compares the spirit to streams of living water flowing from within the individual. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the challenge I have for myself is to ask, is that true of me? 
streams, rivers of living water flowing from within. Is that true of our church? Is that happening here at First Baptist Church? Is that true of your family? Is that true of your marriage? Is it true of of your life as a Christian? Streams of living water. And if the answer is honestly no, I don't see it, then I think you ought to ask God for the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't, when you ask him, I'm not saying you're saying the spirit is not in your life. But Jesus said, if, if you fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Luke 12. So you ought to ask, not as though you don't already have the spirit, but say, Lord, enlarge the ministry of the spirit in my life. I want to drink from those streams of living water. I want to experience it. I want to feel the presence of God in my life. Romans 8, 15 and 16, it says, you receive the spirit of of sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our children uh, that we are God's, uh, sorry, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But the spirit is there to minister that. Then there's this one, this beautiful concept here. 2 Corinthians 1, uh, 21 and 22. It says, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Now, this is an act of assurance. Now, later on in this outline, I'm going to talk about assurance, but I want to stop right now and talk about the idea of the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance that is to come. What does that mean? Yeah. Okay, so it's a pledge, if we could say it this way, if I can sum up what you're saying, a pledge of more to come. This is this, you got this, then there's more to follow, right? Very good, good. Okay, so I, what I want you to do is zero in on that concept. Here is a pledge of some with more to follow. Frankly, infinitely more to follow. So this is my concept, is that the Spirit gives us a present sense of what our future inheritance will be like. Uh, the idea could also be, perhaps, I like the idea of a down payment on a home, that's good, but another would be of uh, uh, orphans of wealthy parents. Imagine wealthy parents both die in a, in a shipwreck. Parents, uh, The children are left orphaned, but not penniless, not by any stretch of the imagination. There's... Uh, Boxes and boxes of gold and a whole estate that is theirs. The problem is that they are eight and ten years old. Boy and a girl, let's say. Okay, well, the, the law would stipulate that the estate and all the money is going to be held in trust until when? Until they, they reach their majority, until they're old enough. Until they're old enough. Until then, uh, are they going to be starving and begging bread on the street? It's like, oh, look at those kids. If they can just hold on and make it till they're 21. You know, it's not looking good right now. They're just looking really emaciated. If they can just hold on, they'll be so wealthy. That's unthinkable. What provision then is made until they reach that age where they can come into their inheritance? What provision is made for them? They'll get an allowance. How good an allowance? A good one. <laughs> really good. As a matter of fact, better than most people are making just from their, their jobs, right? They'll be getting a good allowance. But the idea is always, basically, you ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, wait till you come into your whole inheritance. 
you're a child right now and you're getting plenty to live on. All your needs are met. Everything's set for you. But you, I mean, there's an awful lot more yet to come. Now, let's link that to the Spirit. How is that true of what the Spirit does for us? What is our inheritance? What do you get when you die? What is your, what is your treasure? What do you get as a Christian? What's your reward? Heaven. Someone said God. Okay, well, let's be really precise now. Which is it? Okay. Would you want heaven without God? Would, would, you, would you mind God if there were no heaven? I'm thinking I don't understand that. Heaven's where God lives. As a matter of fact, it's God that makes heaven the place you want to go, right? So let's just not worry about heaven and let's get to the issue. It's God you get as your award and heaven's the place where he lives, right? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to what? The Father except through me. The Father's the destination. You're going to God. That's where you're going. He is your reward. Uh, Genesis 15, uh, God said to Abraham, do not be afraid. I am your very great reward. I'm what you get. Context there is that he had refused to take any of the, the plunder from the, the defeat of the kings in Genesis 14. Uh, King of Sodom and Gomorrah and all that. They're like, oh, we'd really like to thank you. Here's a bunch of stuff from Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's like, no, thanks. <laughs> I don't want anything lest you say you made Abraham wealthy. The very next chapter, God says, don't be afraid, Abraham. I am your reward. You did right. Okay, I will give it. I'll give it to you. Okay, let's zero in on this concept. God is my inheritance. Say that. God is my inheritance. He is what you get. He's your reward. Is that enough for you, by the way? Is that enough or are you disappointed? You know, is that it's enough? You know, well, I get I get God and Aunt Hazel, who is such a godly Christian woman. She's gone on. to I'm going to get to be with Aunt Hazel again. Well, yes, you are. But you know something? The real issue is Aunt Hazel is going to be focused on God. And if you're there focused on Aunt Hazel, she's going to say, would you look at God, please? Because God is the inheritance. And so all of our fellowship with other believers is going to be so sweet because the real focus will be on God. Okay. bottom line, God is our inheritance. We get him and it will be more than enough, ample enough. I don't understand anybody who thinks they could be bored in heaven. God is an infinite being. He's amazingly creative, remarkably creative. And this world is nothing compared to the future new heaven and new earth, which we will, you will create a home of righteousness. You will never be bored for a moment in heaven. Okay, that, friends, is your inheritance. Now, talk to me about the down payment, the deposit, the monthly stipend. What, what are we saying now? We're still we're not there yet, right? We're not in heaven yet. We're not there yet. What does the Spirit do so that we're not penniless while we make it through this tough world that we're living in? What does He do for us? Okay. Huh? He gives us, gives us what we need. Okay. So let's say you've got, you've got the physical inheritances, boxes of gold coins, all right, and some, some uh, uh, property, etc. You are going to be paid at age eight or 10, out of that inheritance. So you'll get some gold coins and a place to live, right? You're not getting something totally unrelated to the treasure you get eventually. My point is then, whatever you're going to get in heaven, you get a lesser version of it here on earth, right? How does the Spirit do that for us? How does He take what we will experience in heaven and at a smaller, lower level, help us to experience it right here on earth now? Okay, that's beautiful. By presenting God to us. Yes, go ahead, Jerry. By giving us, if you think about it, our characteristics are godly because that we portray that we live out, you know, for 
is right away. Those things only come to us by the Holy Spirit because in and of ourselves, we can't give those. But also, I think it when you have the Holy Spirit, it lessens your bent of sin. It keeps those bad things out. Mm-hmm. Not only are you getting the allowance each day, it's kind of like having an orphan kid who's rich and having a bunch of, you know, tax brokers or whatever coming in trying to get his inheritance. Mm-hmm. And you have guys saying, no, that's, you, know, you can't talk to this guy. You can't keep him out. He's, you know, he's out of limits. Okay, very good. Yeah, fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. Okay, so let's just take one of them. Love. How does the Spirit, as our deposit, guaranteeing our full amount, how does He minister love to us? Does He not give you a... Go ahead, Landis, please. By the Holy Spirit, whom He's given us. Romans 5, 5. God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So you say, I don't feel loved. Well, then you're not spending your inheritance. What good would it be if you got a monthly stipend and just accumulate in a room somewhere while you go hungry? What benefit is that? You ought to say, I'm not feeling loved by you, God. I believe I'm a child of God, but I want to have a sense of your love for me. Please give that to me. Is that not your right as a child of God to ask for it? Is it not your right to to ask him to minister it to, to you? Can you not ask him? Isn't this exactly, we're talking right before prayer at 6 o'clock, we're talking about this. Isn't this exactly what Paul gets on his knees in Ephesians 3 and prays for the Ephesian Christians? They, they might have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and that they would know that love that surpasses knowledge so that they would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's a now here today or tonight experience of God's love for us. The dimensions of it the scope of it, the, the, the breadth of it. And you say, I just don't feel that love. Then go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who's unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will what? He'll, he'll, he'll reward you. Reward. Well, what reward will he give you? The best there is. What is it? Himself. He'll give himself to you. I just think we're just so busy and glutted with so many things that are not God that we, after a while we just don't experience His love anymore. And I think we ought to put all those things aside and say, I need God. I want you, Lord. Do you think He'll despise that? Say, ah, oh, look what He... See, there they are praying for me again. There they are praying that, that, that they would love me more. This is exactly what He wants. And this is what He will reward with the very thing you ask. If you ask for anything according to His will, He will give it to you. This is right down the center of his will, that God, all the idols will be shoved away out of my life and you will become what you should have been all along, the center of my being. That is the deposit. That is the, the, the deposit guaranteeing the full amount. How much of the deposit can you get here on earth? How much? Okay. How big could it get though? How big? I mean, what about the Apostle Paul? Did he have any deposit ahead of time, a sense of God's love for him? What happened to him? Third heaven. Okay, I know a man in Christ, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to talk about. I'll boast about a man like that, but about myself, I'm not going to boast about myself. Someone once came and asked me, he said, is Paul talking about himself here or not? I said, oh, definitely he's talking about himself. You know how you know? You just have to keep reading. It's all about exegesis. The next verse, it says, to keep me from being conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. That ends it. All right, no question about it. Paul was talking about himself. He had an experience 
in the spirit of God's love for him. When he got done with that, did he doubt whether he belonged to Jesus or not? Did he doubt any the love of God? I would say no. Is God going to do that for you? I am not promising that. He does what he wills. I will be I will be gracious to those whom I am gracious to. I will be merciful to I, I, He doesn't owe us anything. But he has made a promise that we will see his face. He has made that promise. That's our inheritance. And he can give you as much of the monthly stipend as he thinks you need. But if you don't think you're getting enough, ask for more. Ask for more. Go and say, Lord, I'd like some of my more of my inheritance, and he'll give it to you. It's inexhaustible. Now, to him who, who is able to do immeasurably more than all you can ask or what? Imagine. Say, well, I can imagine a lot, Lord. I can, I can really imagine an incredible sense or experience with you. I can imagine Paul's paradise thing. I can imagine that. He can do immeasurably more than anything you could imagine. I'm just saying don't act like a beggar. Don't act like a pauper, somebody who is not a child of God. This is what the Spirit has come to do. He's come to minister the presence of, the, of God in your life. You know, that's something that's true for all of us. Let's ask him for it. All right. That's just page two. Turn the page. We've got 13 pages to get through here. All right. The next thing the Spirit does is He guides and directs God's people. Do any of you ever feel the need for wisdom, for guidance and direction? How about practical guidance and wisdom? I mean, to know where to go and what to do. Yes. It was in the Old Testament at a low level. Isaiah 31 and 2 says, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, speaking of the Israelites, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me. It really just had to do with the uh, king of Israel or Judah making an alliance with the king of Egypt and never asked God about it. Don't you think that that speaks to you? It's like, don't do things without asking God about it first. Don't make decisions except that you get down on your knees and ask God. But that's the Old Testament. I think we have an even livelier sense of the guidance of God now in the New. And so um, definitely uh, that is something we can expect. It, we see it in Christ's life, uh, Mark 1, 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out, very strong Greek word, drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So the Spirit definitely led Jesus into the desert. Definitely. Okay, uh, how about this one? I like this. Acts 8.29. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. I mean, how specific do you want? You know, we, we talk about, you know, we're, we're kind of theoretical sometimes in this church, talking about theology and all that. I need some practicalities. Well, Acts 8.29 is about as practical as it gets. Do you see that? You see that chariot over there? Go stay near it. <laughs> What's the context of, of Acts 8.29? What's going on there? That's the Ethiopian eunuch. And an angel had told Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So the angel went first. Once he goes down there, then the spirit takes over and the spirit tells him directly, that chariot, go stay near it. What happened after that? Yeah, the witnessing opportunity, a great one, right? Okay, well, how does this relate to your life? Acts 8.29, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Is that too specific? You say, well, that doesn't happen to me, that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, I think it could. I really do. I think it could. I actually think we quench the spirit by not listening to what he tells us to do. I think he prompts us to do things and we don't want to do them, so we don't do them. And then his voice gets a little dimmer in our lives. 
Okay? How practical could this be? Could the Spirit actually guide you and tell you to do things? Ronnie, you're saying yes. Have you ever had that experience where the Spirit led you to do something? Ronnie, five times a week. Does it a lot of times have to do with witnessing for you? Yeah? Okay. I actually think that's one of the ones that you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. I think if we basically say, I'm not going to be a witness, you're going to actually not see this kind of ministry of the Spirit to you. The Spirit has come to help us do what God's left us here in this world to do. And out in the world, when we're out busy in the world, we are to be witnesses for Christ. Jesus says, whoever does not gather with me, what? Scatters. You are either gathering with Christ or scattering. What is he gathering? He's gathering his church, his people, his wheat, his good fish, his sheep, whatever. He's gathering people into the kingdom. Either you will help him with that or you will actually be hindering him. You'll be scattering. And uh, I think that you will hear the Spirit speak in more and more direct and clear and remarkable ways as you more and more embrace the mission that God has the church on to lead people to Christ. Then you'll start seeing amazing things happen, incredible things. Some of them won't make any sense to you. I remember when I was a college student, I walked by a group of uh, two guys. Uh, there was two guys, just one. I was walking the other way. And uh, as I was walking, I felt the Spirit compelling me to go witness to these two guys. I didn't want to. I had somewhere to go, something to do, something really important. Can't remember what it is now, but at the time it seemed really important. But the longer I walked, the more it felt like one of those uh, bungee cord elastic things, you know. Further I went, the harder it got to walk until finally I was like, all right, Lord. And then I turned around and started walking after them. I didn't want to run lest they look over their shoulder and be afraid. So I just had to kind of decide on the pace that was appropriate and caught up to them after about five minutes of walking. And I started talking to them about Christ and they blew me off immediately. And so the point where I thought I've done everything I can and I turned around and, and left. And I thought, okay, Lord, what was that all about? I had no idea. I still to this day don't know exactly what. But I do know that it was all part of the pattern of my life at that point of carefully and accurately listening to the Spirit whenever He told me to witness. I think if you want to hear the Spirit speak, embrace being a witness. I would urge you to get up tomorrow morning and say, Lord, give me an opportunity to witness for Christ today. Two, give me the discernment to see it when it's happening. And three, give me the boldness to make the most of it. Ask, ask him those, those three things. That's what we're praying, ministerial staff. We've been praying that prayer every day for the last four or five months. Every day. God, give me an opportunity to witness for you today. Give me the discernment to see it and give me the boldness to make the most of it and see what happens. And then all of a sudden you'll hear inside your voice something similar to go to that chariot and stay near it. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. You just can hear the voice of Christ speaking and you know he's telling you to do it. So that's how specific you can get the guidance of God. Uh, it, it's in other places too, Acts 10, 19 and 20. While Peter was still speaking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. The Spirit specifically told Peter to go to Cornelius' house. Or this one, Acts 13, 2-4. Uh, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. What is that work? <laughs> What's he referring to? Barnabas and Saul. What is that? Preaching. That's the so-called first missionary journey. That's Paul's first missionary journey. And who told him to go? 
It was the Holy Spirit who said, go, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so the church uh, set them on. So after they have fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Look at verse 4. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? Went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. So it gets so specific. I mean, the, the Spirit sends them on their way and they go to a specific place and get on a ship. For us today, it'd be like getting on an airplane or getting in a car and going and do something. The Spirit leads and we follow. But the thing that's so beautiful about Acts 13 is it's within the context of a healthy local church, the church at Antioch that's doing these great things. And they're having a prayer meeting and the Lord tells them what to do. And and Barnabas and Saul go off and change history. Okay? I like this one. (laughs) I bet you're waiting for this one to happen in your life. All right? When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Wow. What happened to Philip there after he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch? He was transported by the spirit. I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? Lord, do it to me. Either that third heaven paradise thing or the Philip transported by the Spirit thing. Either one would be really exciting. Wouldn't that be great? But uh, the Spirit can do things we can't even imagine. It's really quite remarkable. Um, Ezekiel 11, we see that the Spirit lifted me and brought me to the gate of the house of the Lord that faces He's done that other times. So the Spirit has that kind of power. Uh, Then this one, Acts 16, sometimes the Spirit can say no. He can say, no, don't do such and such. We get that in Acts 16, 6 through 8. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And when they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. So the Spirit said no. How did he do that? How did the Spirit of Jesus say no? What's that? Okay. Was it Providence? Just things happened and they couldn't get their visas or whatever? Huh? Yeah. Could be just a spiritual thing. They're praying and they're just everybody saying, I think we're not supposed to go. And they're all saying that and they didn't, you know, we don't know. But the spirit ministered so strongly that Luke said the spirit would not let them go. So there was a strong sense of the spirit. And then I like what Paul says here, Acts 20, 22 and 23. Paul saying to the Ephesian elders, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Okay? What does that mean, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem? Okay. Yeah. Led by the Spirit, he has no choice. Compulsion is strong, isn't it? A strong compulsion. Let me ask, do you have anything like that? Have you ever had anything like that? Didn't Paul say in Acts 20, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I fear that Christians do not have a spirit-given compulsion. Christians do not have a race that that is set before them that they know they need to run. They feel their sins are forgiven by faith in Christ and the rest is just the average American life. I'm saying it isn't, friends. You need to have a spirit compulsion. You need to have a race that you are the only one that can run it. 
Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works with God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. That is your race. No one but you can run it for you. Nobody but you can run it for you. And how it is that God advances the church with sinful people who do not do all of the good works he has ordained for us to walk in, I don't know. It's a mystery to me. How is it we're still on schedule and yet so many of us are disobedient? I don't know. Only God knows that. But wouldn't it be wonderful if you had a spirit compulsion and a race set before you that you were called to run? Wouldn't that be marvelous? That's what Paul said. He said, my worth, my life actually isn't worth anything except connected to that. And when he finished it, do you remember the time when he finished his race? Do you remember what he said? I have fought the good fight. I have what? I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I did it. He, that means he, as far as he was concerned, he had crossed his finish line. And he said, now there is nothing left except the crown of righteousness. I've finished my race. Wouldn't that be sweet to get the end of your life, age 85 or whatever, you're in the hospital and you know you ran the race God wanted you to run. Wouldn't it be disappointing to know you didn't, to waste, that you wasted your life? I think let's not do that. Let's have a spirit-given compulsion. There's still time, friends. Let's make the most of the time. Let's say, Lord, I don't feel that I've been running any race. I need to run a race. What, what work do you have for me to do? Okay, led daily to put sin to death. We've talked about that every every day. Making decisions in the early church. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us uh, not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements, etc. That's the letter to the concerning circumcision and all that. Let, let me talk to you practically, uh, five, seven minutes. We've already been doing that throughout the thing. What is the Spirit saying to you tonight as a result of the, the study we've had? The last thing I want to do is just go through Grudem's systematic theology and you all just learn a bunch of information. Your lives are not changed in any way. That's, that's terrible. Okay, let's speak more optimistically. The most wonderful thing would be to, to have good biblical instruction and then you go out and, and do things for the glory of God. What is the Spirit saying to you tonight? Ask for more of His Spirit. <clears throat> okay, ask for, how would you do that, Chris? How does somebody ask for more of His Spirit? Blake and I were together. Sometimes it's as simple as just, you know, we were talking, somebody just got to sell a car, right? So maybe just ask for it. Maybe it's nothing that complicated. You don't have to have a high-level degree. You just ask for the things you want. What would you ask him for? If you could have him sitting right in front of you and you could ask him, what would you ask him for based on what we've learned tonight? Yeah, Jack. Okay, sensitivity to the leading of the spirit. That's wonderful. What else would you ask him for? Yeah, Margo. Romans 5, 5. Just get it and read it and say, Lord, do this. Romans 5, 5. Pour out your love into my heart by the spirit. Beautiful. What else would you ask him for? John. So that when he leads, you'll follow. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that a little on Sunday and then you know after that that you might be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good, pleasing. Not just to know it, but to approve of it, to delight in it. Anything else? What would you ask him for? Guidance and obedience? Okay. All right. See, yeah, go ahead, Landis. Not 
So you'd ask to be filled with the Spirit. You know what's so amazing about that and something I've noticed is how many times there are passive imperatives. You must be born again. How do I do that? (laughs) Because it's something that's done to you, right? But he says that to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit is a passive command. Do not be conformed to the world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's passive too. Because you can't transform yourself. You know what I think it has to do with? It has to do with presentation. Presenting yourself to influences. You're presenting yourself to that which can do things to you. Present yourself to the influence of that which will transform you. See, I'm already saying it on Sunday. Now you won't need to come on Sunday. Come anyway. There'll be other things. But you present yourself to an influence which has the power to transform you. Is the world such an influence? Does the world have the power to transform you? Yeah, it does. Can you present yourself to the world to be transformed by it? You better believe you can. Ought you to? No. (laughs) Can you present yourself to God to be transformed by Him? Yes. How do you do that? Come on Sunday, we'll talk about it. But uh, at any rate, it's a passive thing. So you're basically saying, be this in my life. All right, what else would you ask the Spirit for? Power and boldness. To run the race. Say, what else? Okay. Power and boldness to run the race. What else? Yeah. I would ask him that I truly, and I pray that daily, that I would be able to do the greatest commandment that Jesus taught, and I would mm-hmm. be able to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love my neighbor as Yes. You know, I've come to I've come to realize that all the commandments of God are also promises. They are. They're promises. Can't you take a command from God and bring it back to Him in prayer and say, "Do this in me," and He'll do it? I mean, if he's commanding you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, can't you take that and say, clearly, you want me to do this, work it in me. All right, let me ask a question. Why did Jesus, when the two blind men were calling out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David, they're brought into the house. I think it's in Matthew 9. Why does Jesus say to them, what do you want me to do for you? Did he not know? Did, did not everyone know what they wanted? Why then does he say, what do you want me to do for you? He wants you to ask. He wants you to exercise faith. He wants you to make your request known. Don't skip that. Now, not every one of you has spoken up, but you ought to go home tonight and ask for what you want. You ought to go into your room and close your door and pray to your Father who's unseen. Ask for what you want. If you want to lead someone to Christ in the year 2006, ask Him for it. Would you like to? Would you like to lead someone to Christ? Would you like to see people baptized in our church? Yes, then ask him for it. Ask that you would lead someone to Christ. Would you like to use your spiritual gift in a powerful way so that you are an avenue of blessing to people in the church? Ask him for it. Would you like, like Margot said, to have an active sense of the love of God for you in your heart? Then ask him for it. Isn't this what he's told you to do? You should ask. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who speaks to you, you would have what? You would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. Jesus said that to the Samaritan woman at the well. Any final comments before we finish tonight? Yes, Margo. I have a question. Um, if maybe we shouldn't talk differently to each other. If we're not giving the Spirit credit for things He's doing in our life, um, 
don't know if I think if I just came up here, but the spirit told me to go stand by the chariot. Most people would say, oh, how did he do that? You know, how did you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know that he really acknowledged. Mm-hmm. To give him the credit and the glory. I think that's important. I think that's important. One thing that I've learned to do is is to say I felt the spirit leading me to. Um, because, you know, there's some fellowships, whatever, there's this absolute certainty, but it gets into strange things too sometimes. Like I once saw a T-shirt that said, I keep listening to the voices and I do whatever they tell me to do. You know, it's like, mm. <laughs> that's a little scary. But uh, we are, we are, like it says in First Thessalonians, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God. But I think there are some that you, you know the Spirit led you to go witness to somebody. As you test it, you think, how could that not be anything but the Spirit? Then something happens. Somebody gets, comes to faith in Christ and all that. I think we should do exactly what Margot said. The Spirit led me to talk and this and that happened. Don't take credit for it yourself. Yeah, John. Yeah. Uh, yes, go ahead. When you read the verse and you go through the chair at the same time, I believe it's a real footstop. I watch for something. Really? So now you have permission to go buy the sports car. See the things that happen when you come to Wednesday night Bible study. Tell all your friends. Okay. That's good. I like that. On that note, we're going to close in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the study we've had tonight. And uh, I am personally motivated to spend more time asking you to work in my life by the Spirit. I'm thinking specifically of the list of character traits known as the fruit of the Spirit that at many points in my life, if there were a freeze frame and somebody to say, are you right now characterized by the Spirit, by the fruit of the Spirit, I would have to say, no, I'm not. But Lord, I pray that I would learn to so abide in a spirit of prayer that the Spirit of God would be in me and through me and that at every moment I would be characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, these things and others, O Lord, work them in me and in my brothers and sisters here. Lord, make us evangelistically fruitful. Make us bold. Help us to have the same bold fearlessness that the angels would have if they came and witnessed. If they were sent on a mission for an afternoon to go witness and then went back to heaven to report on how it went, they would be utterly fearless. O Lord, help us to not fear what people will think, but instead out of great love, love for you and love for others, be bold. I pray that we'd pray these three prayers. Lord, help me to be a witness today. Give me an opportunity to witness today. And God, give me the wisdom and the discernment to see it when it's happening. And God, give me the boldness to make the most of it. God, I pray that this church would not be sterile or barren in terms of leading others to Christ, but rather that we would be bold and see the actual transformation of lives by conversion, by the uh, being born by the Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.